Good evening, everyone. Thank you so much for coming out on an unusually cold night in Phoenix. But hey, last night, you probably couldn't have even gotten here because of the rain. So we've had a break. Um, I'd like to welcome our virtual audience. Thanks very much for joining us. If you have questions that you'd like to have Patrick ask, please put them in the comments field. Um, so I'd like to introduce Yasmin. I'm trying to remember, were you here live or did we do a Zoom event uh, for your first book? It was a Zoom. It was a Zoom. Right. So since everybody knows Greg and fewer may know you, why don't we talk a moment or two about, because this is your second book. Yeah. They come as night. Uh-huh. But they have something in common because they both have assassins. They do. Right. And by the way, if anybody wants to silence their cell phone, this would be an excellent time to do it. <laughs> and and that would include me now that I've taken my video. Yeah, I just did. Too much. No, carry on. Oh, okay. Sorry, sorry. So yeah, so my um, I have a trilogy. My third one is coming out um, in September. This is my second. They come at night. The first one is her name is Night, um, and it is about Nina Knight, who is an elite Ghanaian uh, lady assassin. Uh, for uh, a tr the African Tribal Council called the Tribe. And so she is um, part of their dispatch team. And when they assign people uh, that they feel have done them wrong in some way who are against the goals that they have, they're trying to build up the people of the African diaspora, um, then she and her team go out and um, dispatch them, take them out. So, so yeah, that's uh, her name is Night, and then they come at night. She's still moving on and, you know, taking names and killing people and doing stuff. It's a trilogy. Are you not going to go past the three? Right now, no, yeah. With Thomas and Mercer, they, they like to top things at three, I think. So if we went, you know, further, that would be great because she's... It's a wonderful series. Thank you. I appreciate it. Um, you know, backdrop to the series. Thank you. Thank you. Yes. So I can see it going a lot longer. I can too. I know they don't ask. Well, they don't ask me either. So maybe well, I'll tell you what. If you want to write a recommendation, I'll forward it to her editor at Amazon. Yeah, please, because I can actually do that. But so, so since she's Ghanaian, so that's the backdrop. My, I'm a first generation Ghanaian American. So I put a lot of my culture in it. So she is a Ghanaian immigrant, and everyone um, is from different parts of um, the continent. Though she lives in Miami because. That's where I think it's just a wonderful place to be, um, though I don't live there, but um, it's where I'd like to. Um, so, so yeah, so it's heavily cultural. Talk about, um, you know, our Ghanaian food that we eat a little bit in there. And um, her favorite thing, though, are uh, bacon cheeseburgers, because that's my favorite thing. And so, so you like vodka, she likes bacon cheeseburgers and milkshakes. So um, it's just a thing. Um, so, yeah, so it's very... It's, ingraining a whole lot of her culture. And the first uh, book is um, a dual timeline. So it kind of tells you how she became um, an assassin. And so it's weird because um, when I found out about your books, um, I was with, I was at lunch with one of my friends, Paula Benson, who's like one of your biggest fans. And I told her I would tell you that. Um, and uh, she was like, you know, your book sounds like, you know, Orphan X and Greg Hurwitz, have you heard? And I was like, no, I haven't. And she was like, you have to, because, you know, they kind of like are, you know, they're like man and male and female versions of, you know, each other. And I was like, really? And I was like, how in the world does someone have such a good idea before me? But anyway, um, but yeah, like, so I read, you know, the first one and, you know, I was like, oh my gosh, like, where was this? And you know the two of them need to meet so that's how i every time i see greg i'm like you know evan and nina need to meet you know like what would he that be like cool. i mean they 
two things, the thing I love so much about the opening one, you're asking what premises is it goes back like the two time frames, which is really interesting. It goes back to her time like when she's in Ghana. Right? Mm-hmm. So there's this whole very intense, very traumatic circumstance that happened there. And we're cutting back and forth to that with a contemporary time frame. And then the group, you said just the council? Right? The tribe. Yeah, the tribe. So there's also this really cool kind of uber mythology in a way, like with Orphan X, right, it's the orphan program. It's the government that's in power that's kind of pulling strings and that she's gone on the run from. But what's really cool with Nina Knight is that it's the, the tribe is sort of back there and they're they're also magnanimous. Like they have a code, they have a value mm-hmm. set, right? But some of her values depart from their values. And so there's a similar kind of give and take in that way. Um, but man, what you put her through in Ghana, that was some brutal stuff. Yeah, she's probably, oops, what happened here? She's probably not, you know, that happy with me either. But, you know, she had to tell the story and, um, yeah, and, um, yeah, she put her through a lot, but she, uh, it made her stronger and a survivor and, and, and made her how she is now. And she also has a mentor, um, just like, you know, Evan does and who trained her up and, and taught her that code and, and how to be a leader. And, and so they share a whole lot of similarities because they're both two people who are kind of broken and, you know, are like shells of, you know, what they could have been. And so all the people who um, come in are into their lives are like filling their well back. Um, with the relationships that they uh, um, encounter, um, as well as them still, you know, taking care of business and, and taking out those uh, bad folks who need to be taken out right. in gorgeous ways. Is my mic on? How are we doing now? Yeah. Okay. Do Do we need to restate everything that just was? <laughs> are we good? Okay. I usually put my phone on record in case these things happen, but I didn't. Did Could you hear it at all on the... Oh, good. All right. So it's only you that probably couldn't hear it. So I have a question, which is that, you know, Africa is a very large continent, and my impression of the tribe is, is it pan-African or is it limited to a um, particular part of Africa? No, it's Pan-African. So um, the tribe is made up of um, different uh, people from different uh, countries, and they're all, they are all um, wealthy business people who have decided to pool their resources and their money to give back to Africa to kind of build them up and um, put back in the resources that have been taken out for years and years. They're basically together to be like, it's time for Africa to not be considered like the third world country anymore. So we're going to like put all of our resources back in and um, and do all these philanthropic um, events and, and things like that um, to to support them. And so anyone who's against that goal, anyone who is out, you know, to serve self or trying to take from the tribe, you know, their money or whatever the case is, anyone who mistreats anyone in the continent, um, if they call on them for help, then the council or the tribe um, will, you know, decree that you know they should be dispatched, and that's when Nina comes in. So yes, they have a, a code system. They don't just go out and and just kill because you know they. It's very um, they keep it very much inside, um, and they just like to take care of home. And so that's uh, what Nina and the tribe is about. And they're fighting in some ways. I think. Correct me if I'm wrong. Like the um, extraction 
extraction culture, right? Come take everything out, strip mine it, leave mm-hmm. it, leave everything bare. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, right. And it's like, there's a lot of rural communities in America who are facing that too. Right. So it's not, it's, it's a theme that's really interesting because people come in, you know, extract everything that's of value and leave. And so Nina in some ways is a bulwark against that, right? The tribe can sort of decree and put her on these different missions and, but then she often is in missions that are cross purposes mm-hmm. morally. Mm-hmm. So I she's don't know got about a... many of you, but I wake up almost every day wishing I had an assassin I could deploy. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, you look at the world and you think, seriously, <laughs> why isn't there? I think that's one reason the Marvel superheroes have really made a comeback too. Don't we all wish there really were Superman or somebody like that who could, you know, go to the Ukraine or do something? Really good. For those who are interested in Ghana, there's another author we did a Zoom with him last week named Quay Corte. Mm-hmm. And he writes about a private investigator named Emma John, who's Ghanaian. Ghanaian. Um, and, um, and it's a really interesting story. It's the third in his series. And I really like it. You may not be aware this is Black History Month in the literary world. So, um, it, you know, just... Are you here by design for that? I didn't even think about that. I, I know Quay was. I'm not, but, you know, I, I'm i right on point, aren't I? You are. <laughs> yeah. Absolutely. You know, sometimes things are purposeful, and sometimes they're just accidental, but it all works out really well. So, Orphan X. Yeah. Orphan X. And I have to tell you that when we were a little teeny store over on Main Street, when back in the pre-internet days, because we started in 1989, People would screech up in front of the store in a taxi and run in and they would say, quick, I need an airplane book. And at that point, we had Nelson DeMille's The Charm School was our magic book. And we probably sold a thousand of The Charm School because that was our go-to book. We just kept them on the counter and people came in. All right, so the world's changed and The Charm School has aged and we are no longer in the same place. And rarely does anybody leap out of a Lyft or an Uber But still, it does happen. And so now, instead of the maze, our go-to book is Orphan X. Yay, it's been that way for some time, which might explain why there's a copy missing (laughs) for the woman who wanted it. I'm so pissed. But anyway, there we are. So Orphan X, he's got... Do you remember Barry Eisler? Who, who of us could forget Barry Eisler? I yeah. remember Barry Eisler. Of course yeah. you do. It's not, it's not like he's deceased. No. <laughs> we remember Barry. Yeah. But he also had a, a guy that um, couldn't attach to anybody, sort of like Superman in a way, you know, mm. constantly hiding from Lois Lane, his real personality in the Hobbit. Um, and yet as that series went on, inevitably people did get attached, and then he had to deal with it. The Rain Man, that was it. So Orphan X, you know, how have you how have you dealt with that? Because he can't he can't just be Orphan X all alone every book. He can't. I mean, part of why we like fiction and we like stories is to see people interact, right? It's it's people in relation. And there's only so far you can go with a lone wolf. And Orphan X, the nowhere man, he's a lot more of an, a lone wolf. And Hellbent, I introduced a character called Josephine Morales, right? Joey. She's a hacker, she's 16. She's the last thing he wants to deal with on the mission that he's on. He gets stuck with her. I was supposed to kill her in my outline at the end of Hellbent. And if you read Hellbent, you can see right the scene where she's supposed to die. And I got there and I just thought, I I can't do it. Not only is she delightful to write, she's funnier than I am in real time. (laughs) 
but not drinking vodka over at the Beverly. Well, we noticed. Yeah, right. Yeah, sixteen-year-old girls are so responsible. Um, I doubt she'd be drinking vodka. But she, you know, she brought out so much texture in Evan. Right. She gave him like a hard time. Like she was constantly like no one puts you on your back heel as an adult man, like a teenage girl. Right. It's just, um, it was amazing. It was amazing what she brought out in him, what she elicited in him. In some ways, his first intimate contact since Jack Johns, right. He had a handler and his, you know, his CIA handler became like a father figure to him. That was Jack Johns. And Jack was really the first person to treat him like a human. Right. He grew up with no mother, no father in a foster home, was pulled out at the age of 12. And in the book where Jack dies, which is hellbent, he gets tasked with having to take care of this washout from the orphan program. And she just be she just becomes this like amazing thing that he can't deny however much he wants to deny it. And so it's interesting because the last orphan is very much about for me, it's very much about trauma. It's about like it's not just that his past you know, we always read in flap copy on the backs of books, right? Like, you know, but his his past catches up to him. Last orphan, his his past overtakes him. He's like bound and gagged and delivered back into the hands of the government that created him as an expendable weapon to do one more job. And if he doesn't do that job, they're going to put him in the earth. So it's like choose between your code or your life, right? Unless he can find a third way, which is the orphan way, which we'll see. So I needed him to be more connected because him processing trauma by himself. And so when he's at his worst place with that and figuring out what to do, he calls he, when he's in, he says, I'm in the hurt, man. And he calls Tommy Stojak and that's his armor. And that's someone who's become a friend to him. So he's become in a weird way in community with people. He's no longer just a lone wolf. And so when that trauma happens, Part of him being open to even experiencing or acknowledging that is the fact that he has these relationships with other humans and he's got to figure out how to navigate that even while, while determining what the hell he's going to do moving forward in this crazy plot. I like the opening scene. Vodka is a theme um, because what, what's Evan doing in the opening part of this book? We can he, talk about that with those. He is on a glacier in the middle of Iceland in a pop-up bar drinking Reykjavik vodka, one of the world's best vodkas. And he flew there just to taste the vodka on a glacier, um, which is something that only here I would do. Um, and of course, there's a bunch of loud mouths and, you know, the, the need for potential appropriate violence might ensue. Um, but that's the opening. And that's where we find them. But you don't probably have command of the nifty private jet then. X does. No, I, I'm, I'm waiting for it. I do get the world's greatest vodkas sent to me because if I write about them, their sales go up. And so I get these beautiful bottles that are like engraved from vodka makers around the world. So I'm like, I should write a, I should write like a Bentley into the next book, right? I should go, I should go for a private jet. Like, let me just keep upgrading this game. If you're from Southern California, product placement is in your blood, right? <laughs> no, just can't. I remember Peter Robinson years ago wrote a book in which he traveled as detective from Yorkshire to Australia and hit a particular vineyard. And it was so exciting because every year then they send him a case of fabulous wines. Right. So it actually can work. It's funny. I mean, look, I certainly will not complain when it comes to fine vodka because I love vodka. But if it was just about me, which a series is not, right? As the author, you always want to be, the story's got to be primary. But if it was really all about me, it would be bourbon. I'd be getting a lot of specialty bourbons. Yeah. 
but it just doesn't what, match up. Pappy or whatever, isn't that the really? I th- I find Pappy slightly overrated, but they're you know like I'd say Blanton's. I'd have them sipping on like a gold label from Blanton's. You know, you could introduce a character who's attached That's to right. bourbon. That's I what mean, I'm going to do. All is not lost for bourbon product placement here. True. I love it. Okay, so he's there in Iceland drinking vodka because he's kind of in a in a hurt place, right? And so the because right. the last book took a really toll on him. Um, so these books are exhausting for him. I mean, we got to give him some credit. We do. <laughs> now, I I can't remember the title, but um, do I assume that most of you have read Great Hit the Orphanix? So well, I'm, I'm last book was Dark Horse. It, no, it was before that. Do you remember the one where the where we lost the president before this president? Oh. That was Out such a dark. cool final scene. I reread it four times. <laughs> I was just like, I can hardly believe how absolutely perfect this is. And that's where your family medical background really helps you, right? Because yeah, it helps me kill people. Up. Yeah, I just yeah. pull them constantly in violation of the Hippocratic Oath. But I mean, I, it, it was a particularly ingenious way. Well, thank of, you. And I thought you had to consult people that would be a hard one to just make up right yeah it's so funny because i'm calling people constantly and my college roommate so i'm from a family of doctors um which is is like the jewish son makes me like the world's greatest disappointment to, (laughs) to, to merely be an american novelist um but um but my college roommate also is an er doc so i'll call him all the time and be like hey I'll call him or like I have Navy SEAL buddies too, where I'm like, what's the best place to stab somebody? Like where, where, where between the ribs do you need to go? And then they'll just start talking to me and then they'll, there'll be a pause and they'll go, oh dude, I'm out at a coffee shop and the ladies one booth over are just looking at me right now. Like you wouldn't believe. So it's like, I take all their medical training, right? All the Hippocratic oath. And then I just subvert it to my own needs to injure and maim. Last time David Baldashi was here, he told us a story which I've always loved. He was on a train in Excel or something going from, he lives near Washington, up to New York. And his agent called and they were going over. So David was talking about the best way to kill people. And gradually, the whole, you know, and they threw him off the train. <laughs> it's just so great. Authors, I think, sometimes forget, you know, yeah. that the little bubble that they I had that in. one time I called poison control. I was like in the middle of a book super hazy. And I was like, look, if you're poisoning someone with oleander, like, do you need to use the flowers or can you just use the stems? It's like a long pause. And the woman was like, what phone number are you calling from, sir? Usually, if you think about it here in Phoenix, oleander is like, you know, on every block, you could harvest oleander here without anybody. You look like a gardener. So, when you're figuring out who and how to kill, do you go? You go to doctors. You go to like who? Who do you go? Who do you go call? To my sisters. My sisters are nurses. One is um, you know, in an ER and stuff. So I'll just be like, Cecilia, this is what I want to. I need this medicine. Yeah. Um, which is like in this book, there's a scene um in the uh in in a hospital and so i'm like i need this like what is going to cause someone to like have a heart attack yeah, it's always so funny and they're like well it'll be a heart attack but also explosive diarrhea yeah. and you're like no i i don't need the diarrhea <laughs> i don't want that part. like what's a heart attack without diarrhea right right yeah. and, and it has to be something that you know will take a little bit of time so she can get away and blah blah, yeah. blah. and so i'm very specific and so like they're trying to figure it out and it's it's great it's great text messages so if at&t looks through it they're like what the hell <laughs> 
coming that we're not being monitored every second of the day by you know i hadn't thought about the need for a clean heart attack but now that's a new thing to yeah, keep in mind while right. we're reading all right so let's get back on point evan comes back from iceland to what he comes back he wants to see mia so mia single mom district attorney lives downstairs from him raising an eight-year-old boy called Peter, who I think has a lot of resonance for him because he's like an orphan. His dad died of pancreatic cancer. And so Evan's kind of connected, not as closely connected as with Joey, because Joey's Joey, but he's got something that's kind of real with her, and he goes to visit her in the hospital. And essentially, there is unleashed in ex a massive manhunt with, I mean, there's Blackhawk back, Black back, back up. There's cat teams there i mean it's it's just a massive thing and that's basically what catches him and he's brought before essentially he's just taken down and he's brought before the president and there's somebody out there who she needs taken off the books and it's a very dangerous billionaire um and billionaires are tricky you know billionaires um are starting to get to a place where they can threaten a lot right they they're almost they almost have as much power as a nation state right and this particular billionaire, he holds the, he throws these giant parties in the Hamptons like the Great Gatsby, but he's got a camera in every room and he puts every single vice on display, right? So it's like whatever you want, you can have, but he's filming all of it. And so part of what he's filming is Supreme Court justices and senators and news moguls. And so he's got this black book where he can kind of use extortion, but it's, it doesn't have to be full extortion. For research for this, you know what I actually looked up? I looked up um, Jeffrey Epstein, how he ran his scams. And it was brilliant because it's like, why extort someone if you don't have to? If you have the information on them, basically you ask them and say, give me $100 million to my hedge fund. I'll invest it at 20% and right and and um, X percent. And so you create like a fund basically where everything's legal and everyone just gives you money in the fund and you're making money for them and you're taking your draw on the money. And so there was this whole elaborate system he has in place, but basically he's got a black book for anybody. So he can swing votes, he can swing news cycles, he can do everything. And the president of the United States is looking at this saying, this isn't good for our institutions. This isn't good for me and what I want to pass. And so she basically needs the only person in the world who could commit an impossible execution given his um, cadre of security and also leave no fingerprints that wouldn't be traced back to her. So she goes and gets back at orphan X and tells him that he has to do this thing. And he's got to make a determination whether he can or not. It's an impossible mission. And when he goes to meet Luke, meet Luke divine, who is this billionaire, he is unlike anybody who he's been up against in the past. So it's a very different kind of mission for him. So he's made a bargain with the president because she there's a pardon thing going on. She, he has kind of an informal pardon from her, but she can yank it if he doesn't accept this mission. That's right. So he's trying to figure out, like, can he align this with his moral compass? Because that's his code, and he's not going to break his code. But Luke Devine's a tricky character. You know, I based him in part on um, Milton's Lucifer from Paradise Lost, right? When Milton wrote Paradise Lost, his Lucifer is the intellect that falls in love with itself and convinces itself that it can do anything. And we all know that. We're all seeing that everywhere all the time, right? Like we can get the words right. We can get the arguments right. It doesn't mean that you're getting, it doesn't mean that you're good, right? It means you're incredibly articulate. 
And a lot of us have, have, like, we've seen that be, I think, in some ways, really ascendant in the culture, this notion that, like, the hardcore um, expertise, the intellectual expertise is the thing that can explain anything away. And Evan keeps everything grounded. He's not interested in the abstract. He's not interested in the political. And so you have in Luke Devine somebody who feels like everything that he does he can have an argument for, he can manipulate, he can get inside people and twist and turn them. And he's trying to do that with Evan. Um, but Evan, when he sort of starts to approach this, one of the things he discovers is at one of these great Gatsby-like parties, a young man and a young woman were killed. And that's all he cares about. So Luke Devine's up here pulling levers in the abstract world. And he keeps saying to Evan, because it's this really weird dance between them, right? Evan's supposed to kill him. He knows Evan's supposed to kill him. But Evan needs to find out, like, if he is personally responsible for killing one young man and one young woman. That's all he cares about. In the meantime, Divine's like, who cares about that? We have bigger stuff to do. All the shit you do down on the street and all the stuff that you do with your code, I'm doing on a bigger scale. I'm doing globally. I'm doing in this big way. Like, come join me. It's this really interesting dialogue. And Evan's like, look, I'm going to figure out if you were responsible for that one man who was murdered and that young woman and that young woman. And if you are, I'm going to take you out. And so they're talking like at very different purposes. It's this very like sort of contentious dance they have. And the whole time Luke Devine's trying to get in his head and is trying to twist him and tangle him up. I have to say that Elon Musk floated through my mind while I was reading this. But if you've been paying attention, if you read about the head of the Wagner group, who, you know, I think he's going to end up challenging Putin. I think, you know, there was a, there's a book coming up by Alma Katsu. I don't know if you read her, but she's great. Used to work in the CIA. She'll be here on March 13th. And kind of the underlying premise of her book is that with Putin gone, we might get somebody worse. And it looked to me like this Wagner group guy could be it. You know, we're not going to solve the whole thing by just getting uh, rid yeah, of... Yeah, careful when guy. you create power vacuums from afar, right? Well, or, you know, if there's another guy in the wings, he could be worse and younger. Mm-hmm. Younger. Where's Keith? There you are. Greg's editor has flown out from New York for this event tonight, and we were comparing notes about aging is not for sissies. <laughs> but, you know... If you have a 70-year-old and then somebody maybe 10 years younger who's equally lustful for power and has equal resources, the younger guy's more likely to win out, right? Well, and I think it's a lot of what, I mean, that's a theme in your books too, right? Is this lust for power? And what do you do when people have that, right? And when they're convincing, when they can make a good argument for it too. It can't just be simple, right? No, it can't. It can't. And those are the scariest ones, you know, the ones that can... uh, convince you know from their being magnanimous and and just having everybody is a a hero in their own story right and so to them they are the heroes and so they have these goals and they can just spin that story so well and so and i love when i read it right i loved that exchange between luke and um and evan and i was like oh my gosh like did he kill them and you know like all these things and and what is evan gonna do because this guy is so different and um and it what you know it had me i was y'all just need to read it it was just it was just that good yeah yeah so a really great thriller needs a really good villain thrillers tend to rise and fall on the villain as much as the hero so did you put enormous effort into coming up in this is two books so your villains have they been a lot of work for you you know yes 
yes and no because I love writing villains. Um, I always try to write them in a way that the reader um, they're not totally one way. Like they, there's something that they have in there that the reader can relate to. There's um, whatever it is that their motivation is. Um, it is something that make that might make sense to the reader and they're like yeah I can see why but you know I just don't like the way they're doing it but I could see why kind of they're doing it or or whatever the case I think that makes for the most interesting villain someone who is not innately bad but they're you know they have charisma like Luke has charisma and Paul had charisma in the first one and and um the person who's in here you know you know they well they're unknown who who that person is but when she does meet with that person that person also has is driven by you know a motivation that Nina can understand and the reader will be able to understand because something was taken from them. And so I feel like uh, those kind of characters um, in a villain make for the best kind of uh, play with the with the um, pr protagonist uh, because wow, how is that protagonist gonna gonna defeat that person? How are they gonna keep from you know really aligning with that person because they can understand where that person's coming from? And it just makes for great story. Yeah, it's so interesting. You figured this out, I think, earlier in your career than I did, which is you don't want to have heroes and villains. You want antagonists and protagonists. And what you're saying, like with Paul in the first book, you want someone who's like whispering to your shadow, right? Like you want the antagonist to be like calling to some part of you that you really relate to. Yeah. Like where part of you is tempted to just go along with that because it makes a lot of sense. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, and that's... That's well, that's well stated. Thank you. That's so interesting for me because Greg and I have been together from your second book, every book, as far as I know, we have had conversations together. It's been interesting watching, you know, your early books. And then when Orphan X came along, it was like a fixed point kind of, mm. you know, do you find having, cause you wrote some standalones, quite a few. Have you found that, you know, is what are the challenges for writing Orphan? as opposed to writing standalones for you? You know, I took a lot of time before starting Orphan X. I mean, I wrote four books. I had the idea for Orphan X and I kept backburnering it because I was like, I have to really know this character well. There was a lot of things that had to come together. I didn't want to just write another character who's like, you know, former spec ops and is kind of involved in missions. And one of the biggest things for me, interestingly enough, was... One of the things I love in writing standalones is the question of motive. Why does the story take place? Why does the protagonist get involved with the story? It's up for grabs in a standalone, right? It's like, why does it, if someone's a detective or a cop or a secret service agent, it's like, well, why did the mission happen? It's like, well, it's their job, right? It's what happened to them. But I love playing in, in these standalones with like, in one of them, it's like curiosity, right? Is one of the motives that kind of winds somebody in. And so with Orphan X, there's all these different avenues that stories can arrive into him, right? He's got the 1855 to nowhere phone number, which you can call and you can see if Orphan X answers the phone. Um, and that's the more that's the more obvious version. Then there's what I think of as sort of like the mythology episodes, right? That's when the program comes after him, right? That's like the tribe for you. And I think about that sometimes in terms of like X-Files is one of my favorite shows, right? And they'd have the standalone episodes, but then they'd have mythology episodes. And it's good to have the two things that you can kind of move between. But also with Evan, then all of a sudden it becomes like the people he lives among in ordinary life. 
right? He's in this high rise residential tower dealing with like annoying everyday people. Mm-hmm. He's an archetypal archetypal kind of character who has to come home and deal in the real world where we deal in. So he'll get in a knife fight and come home and have to have like a get yanked into an HOA meeting where they're debating <laughs> like the fucking pile in the <laughs> lobby carpet, right? And he's like bleeding out in his arm and dealing with like Ida Rosenbaum, the aggravating like, you know, elderly Jewish lady who lives downstairs who's like screaming at him and his car's leaking oil and yep. it was just was shot cool. up and... Mm-hmm. And so that's another avenue, right? So I wanted all these avenues set up so that for me, I feel like, and so, and that was one piece. And then there were some other pieces around the character that I just waited to feel like I knew you want your character to have everything unique, right? Like an orphan X action scene or line of dialogue, it should be different than born or reacher or bond or night, right? Mm -hmm. It's got you. That's what you're going for is you want every aspect to accrue to character. Character has got to drive everything. And, you know, if you stop someone on the street and you say, Hey, what's your favorite James Bond action scene? They might hesitate and think, but we all know how he likes to take his martini, right? It's the character. And that was the piece I was waiting and waiting until I could get something that I felt like I could play with in that sandbox for, you know, as long as y'all keep buying them. <laughs> and that's why we're here, right? Yeah. Love it. So yeah. if you are going to merge, move on from Nina, mm-hmm. you've learned a lot, right? So yeah. if you have to design a new series or a new character or even write a standalone, this has been excellent training, right? It has been. It has been. Um, and I, I can never say that I'll entirely move on from from Nina. That's what they tell me. But in my mind, it's not, you know, it's she will always go on. And, and even the people who surround her, um, you know, will, will go on because they're such a great group of um, characters. But, yeah, it, it's really taught me a lot. Um, it's hard, you know, putting, you know, having a series and, and maintaining it and, you know, making sure that it is fresh and, and interesting. And, and so how you've done it for I think eight books um, or something like that, like, wow. And, um, and that's just amazing. And so like, uh, it, it's a lot of work, but it also is great because to be, to dabble in that world and to be in that world for so many years, it, um, it's, it's just really fulfilling and I enjoy it. So yeah, but with my next one, which will be a standalone, and I really don't know, you know, I haven't decided yet exactly what it's going to be, but it's going to be like a palate cleanser. And, you know, I'll just try something new. And, and if I do have another series, I do know, like, you know, the, the hits and the misses that I had, um, and how to like really get myself together so that I can like put it through uh, fruition and everything. So I don't know. We'll see. Sometimes publishing is actually like a course, you know, for it really, it's a learning. I think for most writers, every book may be a learning oh thing, God. right? I, I think you, I mean, for me, I got to be scared every time I'm starting a book yeah. that I can't pull it off, yeah. right? And you always want to be reading. The big club back there going, Greg. <laughs> There's what? Keith back there going, oh, yeah. Greg. Oh, yeah. I forgot Keith was here. Never mind. It's a breeze. <laughs> I have it all figured out. Yeah. I got the next 30 years charted out. Got it all worked out. Patrick, are there any questions from the streaming audience? Because I saw you pop out here. Oh, you're just listening. Okay. Well, then I can take. We can take questions from the actual audience. Yes, sir. I love your books, Greg and Orphanix. My brother and I is one of our favorite characters, and I love his uh, code of ethics. 
and what, what I've been waiting for is to see if there's ever uh, a female uh, antagonist that he comes across to see how he would deal with that. Uh, <laughs> you didn't read my email? <laughs> All right, well, just hold on. I'll see you next year. But thank you. I'm glad you guys enjoy it. But yeah, no, I think I think it'd be good for him to be up against a woman who, you know, he's kind of up against Candy, but she's, you know, yeah. that's a bit more like Batman and Catwoman. You know, it's like they're they can't figure out what the hell's going on. It's just it's strong chemistry. There's a lot of there's a lot going on, but he's got to get up against somebody who's super intense and has double X chromosomes, I think. So mm -hmm. let me chew on that. And oftentimes I'll listen to the Audible because I'm driving back and forth to California and Arizona. Mm. And you and Scott Brick are like peanut butter and jelly. Yeah. <laughs> ah, we're talking about Scott Brick, that great audio. He's actually been here um, to do an event with Steve Berry. He's Steve right. Berry's um, audio guy, and it's fascinating. I keep hoping to lure him back. He is so right. good. My question for you would be, are any of your books going to be a movie? And if so, or if not, who would you want to play Evan? Oh, God. Are any of my books going to be a movie? Who would I want to play Evan? So I just did an eight-book deal with Paramount Plus on my standalones. Um, and I will be producing them with Scott Frank. Scott did. Scott, he's an incredible. He's my favorite, probably, adapter on the screenplay front. He did Minority Report. He did um, A Walk Among the Tombstones, the Lawrence Block. He did Get Shorty. He did Queen's Gambit. He's he's amazing. And so we're trying to find kind of younger voices. It's really hard to break into Hollywood, you know, and we're trying to get like younger talent that we can kind of cultivate and, and shape and move forward. So that's the eight standalone books, you know, Orphan X I've adapted for, you know, I adapted once for, um, a movie star lost them to an Oscar award-winning movie. So much of that, it's like trying to capture lightning in an eyedropper. Yeah, it it's the timing. I've had amazing directors. I've had actors. I've had all sorts of things shuffling through. Last three years, I have the rights back, and I just took them, and I'm like sitting waiting for the right combination. One of the things I learned is I originally wrote the adaptation um, for the first actor we sent it to, and then I also wrote the pilot or co-wrote the pilot. And one of the things I've realized now that I'm on, like that worked when I had one or two or three books to go back and try and reset the franchise. But now that I'm like out here, we're talking about book eight, I'm editing book nine. I'm talking about book 10. I'm thinking about book 11. I don't think I can go back and also be the creator to oversee the parallel universe. I think they're too divergent. And so that's been a bit of, um, it's been interesting to come to terms with that, having tried to adapt them and having my own original stuff made too. But I think I really need to have like a relationship with someone who gets the series in a different way. And so we're constant. we do get queries all the time from actors and directors, and it's just going to be about finding that right combination. So I don't like cast someone who's the wrong size and hear about it for the rest of my life. Oh, I wonder who that could have been. Right. You've actually had a movie, and I've always thought that once you get a movie, that it would it would be less difficult to get another movie. Well, I've had so my first movie took me eighteen years to get made. It was right. called The Book of Henry. It starred Naomi Watts. Second movie was called Sweet Girl. I co-wrote it with a friend, mm -hmm. Philip Eisner, 
and we got Jason Momoa attached two weeks before Aquaman came out. And there was like a window that they had to hit before they lost him to justice league. And we were shooting like eight months later. I mean, so like everything's different. I mean, it was like 18 years or eight months. Um, and there's different stuff I have now in all kinds of different stages, but it's all got to kind of snap together. You know, it's a higher cost of entry, you know, in a lot of ways, because if, if we do an orphan X book, we're looking at, if you add publicity and advertising, it's a hundred million dollars. Like that's a big yes. You're asking for somebody. And so like I had the actor, I had the director, we had the book, we had all the stuff and then lost the actor into another project. He was writing, directing, producing, starring the whole thing. And, you know, Warner brothers is going, look, we can't, we don't want to support this for another 18 month option at right to wait and see what comes around. So it's like, there's all these things you have to get in alignment. Um, and it's funny cause when I was earlier in my career, I used to think, God, I almost had like, I almost had this thing get green lit. Um, but I just missed. And then you realize that that's the norm. The norm is you're just missing all the time until something happens. And then that's pretty remarkable, but you do get better relationships and you do get a chance to move stuff forward in different ways. Oh, well with my second movie, sweet girl was with Netflix. And they know what they're doing. And, you know, like I said, we had the actor, we had Jason Momoa, we had a window. It just had to happen in that time frame, And it just went. But Next week on Monday, Mark Rainey will be here with Kyle Mills. And Mark has a movie called The Gray Man. Um, and, you know, he, he wrote, I don't remember, 15? I don't, he can't remember how many books that Mark has written. And then all of a sudden we have The Gray Man. But the problem is if you get an actor... I'm going blank because he was in Drive. What's his name? Ryan Gosling. Thank you, Ryan Gosling. And that's what Greg was talking about, that um, there was never a sequel to Drive because Ryan Gosling got too big all too fast and was never available again. Mm. You know, remember Matthew McConaughey was in um, the first... A time to Kill? Um, no, I'm thinking about the, you know, The Lincoln Lawyer. Thank you. But now, you know, they've started over again with it in television and they have a whole new guy and you could do that, but you couldn't really make another movie, I think, without without McConaughey, who also is now writing books and running for governor and whatever else he's doing. Right. So, um, Christina. My favorite part is when I turn it in because it's done, right? <laughs> and I'm like, I don't have to look at it anymore. Uh, my least favorite is is actually starting it and getting into it because it's like what Greg said, like being afraid every time, like, oh my gosh, like I, this is a daunting task. I have to write, you know, 90,000 plus words and, and it has to be good apparently. So, um, <laughs> so like that's the, that's the least favorite for me is trying to figure out how everything is going to come together. And, and that's a cause of a lot, like a lot of stress, but once it's done and like, even the first draft, once it's done, I'm like, Thank you, Jesus. And I can, you know, like give it to her, not the first draft, because it's got to be kind of clean. But like, I, you know, then I have something to go off of. It's not having anything to go off of. And, um, and I'm not like a huge, huge planner. So I don't know, you probably are like a really good planner, aren't you? Mm. Really? Yes. 
All right. Yeah. Go ahead. I gotta walk a balance. Yeah, like if I, I over plan, then I'm like painting by numbers, and if I'm bored writing it, then people are bored reading it. Yes, I feel the same exact way. But you know, apparently editors want synopsis and and things like that. How dare you? And outlines and things. And I'm like, I just you know that to me takes the creativity away. And and I just like to you know be free. But I understand that it's a biz. That's what something I've learned that it's a business. And so people when they have expectations and deadlines and things, they want things from you, and you can't just be sitting around and twirling in the chair like I literally do um, instead of writing. So yeah, so that's my least and my uh, and my most favorite. Mm. So I love writing. <clears throat> I actually love writing when I'm focused. My biggest problem is like getting like right now there's lots of distractions because there's lots of other things and projects. But like if I'm writing and that's all I'm thinking about and in, I love that. I love writing when it's like pulling me instead of me pushing it. There's a process where that happens, where you feel like all you're thinking about is story yep. and it's amazing. It's like, it's not, it's like being out of your head when you're playing sports, right? Where you're just reacting almost. Um, hardest part for me is always the second act. I write kind of in a, th a rough three act structure. Um, I don't think of it necessarily that way. It's just kind of in my lizard brain at this point because I've written so much. But the big boggy middle is always where I'm like, this isn't working. This is a mess, right? Beginning, I, I like charge out there and everything's going to be amazing. And then when I'm on the back, like the back nine, you got momentum. But there's always this time in the middle where I'm like, I don't think this one's going to work. And I think it's a mess and it's all boggy. Because with screenplays or TV pilots or comics, you can always kind of sense where you are. No matter where I am in a screenplay, I can reach back and grab the lip of the first act, right? And I know where I'm headed. I know where I am in that. But novels are so big, you go down, you descend in them, and you kind of write your way through, and you pop out the other end and look back and just hope it doesn't suck, right? <laughs> it's like they're, they're, there's a lot. It's 400-plus pages of final product. And so, and also like if I get stuck in a scene in the middle and it takes me like days to write on the scene, I feel like the reader is taking days. Like I won't remember that it's only like 12 pages, right? So you lose sense of time and proportion in that middle. It's tough. Like if I come down, I'm like, ah, nothing's working. This is a mess. Like I should just sell pencils on the street corner. My wife will be like, second act, honey. Yeah, I'm back in the second act. Well, on that cheery note, <laughs> I think we should thank our authors, but we have a thing that we do, which is that we like to give you a book, um, a free book, in part for having come tonight. So what kind of number are we looking at, Pat, up there? Okay. So we have two books to give away. One, I mentioned Michael Robotham, an author that I like very, very much. This is his third Cyrus Haven book. Um, he lives in Sydney. And so we had a great conversation yesterday, but it was the next morning for him, and it wasn't quite yet Valentine dinner here for us. So Zoom does create this kind of weird time for, you know, which is strange. Anyway, um, pick a number between 1 and 29, and I will give this to whoever is that lucky person. Number 10. Oh, look at you. You want a book. Yay. You want to pass that back to her? Can you do that? All right, Esme, I actually have my advanced reading copy of your book. So I'm going to ask you, they come at night, beautiful cover. Um, I'm going to ask you to pick a number between 1 and 29 that is not 10. Okay. And, and we'll award or that. we could book. just double down on 10. 
<laughs> you want to go home with two bucks? Um, I'll do 22. You have to look in your book. Sometimes <laughs> sometimes people aren't here that, that have a number, so oh. it doesn't this always... This immensely anticlimactic. You should be ashamed as an audience. No, sometimes some people stayed home in their jammies to watch this today. So I have to pick something else. Uh -huh. um, all right, uh, 14. Please. <laughs> Not 14 what? either. Okay. Uh, six? <laughs> wait, wait, who said that? Who said 28? Uh -huh, that was a good six. I said six. That's you? Oh, Thank you. Well, a, a wonderful person, a faithful customer. So, yep, no, I'll trust you. That's all right. Nobody challenged you. So mm -hmm. there we are. Right. So I want to thank all of you very much for coming. Since many of you are new tonight, do please stop at the desk and sign up for our newsletter because we do an event, um, well, generally every day and sometimes two a day. Um, so I'll write to you and tell you what it is we're up to. Or you can look on our website at the calendar, either way. But we hope you'll come back. So if you would give our authors a round of applause and thank them for coming. Hello. We hope you're enjoying our programs and podcasts with authors. We'd like to expand them, and your help would be appreciated. Please make a donation at poisonedpenfoundation.org. 100% of the proceeds will go to help connect authors with readers in this difficult time. Thank you.